All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I am your host, Aaron Freeman. Today is another Q&A episode where I'll be answering your listener questions dealing with the Falcons. You are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman. been covering the Falcons for many years at FileFans.com, also on Twitter at FileFans. And, of course, the host of this illustrious Locked On Falcons podcast. Today is another Q&A episode to wrap up the week. As we get geared for this upcoming Week 10 matchup against the Cleveland Browns, people submitted their questions mostly on Twitter. Got a couple of Facebook ones, but people threw their questions at me at Falcons, of course, on Twitter. But, of course, it's easier for me to find these Q&A type questions if you send them over to Locked On Falcons. That's the show's Twitter handle. You can also submit them out on Facebook. Locked on Falcons is the name of the page there. You can also email them, lockedonfalcons at mail.com. I know I got some email questions this week. Unfortunately, Andy, I won't be able to answer your questions directly, but I think I've touched upon a little bit of that stuff this week. So, um, And I think I did touch upon some of your questions on Twitter. So be sure to follow me on Falcons to, to get those questions. So there you have it. Let's jump right into it. We got plenty of great questions this week. First two questions are on a similar note. They discuss Bruce Irvin from Thomas Mulryan. He asks, I'd like to know what is your honest expectations of Bruce Irvin, solid starter or rotating member? Owen Myers, Owen Myers S on Twitter asks, who do you think Bruce Irvin will take snaps away from? I think Irvin will be a rotational player. I mean, if we're talking quote unquote starters, we're talking about the 11 guys that played a nickel and Tack and Vic will be the starters there. I don't see that changing. I know the Falcons are talking up their sort of NASCAR package, and we touched upon that, I think, yesterday on the Fan Talk. Um, And we talked about sort of Irvin and Beasley being the edge rushers and then kicking tack inside to play alongside Grady. You might also put Jack Crawford in there in the mix, uh, subbing out for Grady or or tack or whatever. Probably not tack, but probably Grady. So, um, you know, I don't think the Falcons are going to break that out like, 15 to 20 times a game or anything like that, but they'll probably do that like five to 10 times a game, depending on the, the situations and whatnot. Um, I think probably at first you'll see Irvin get used similar to what we did with Freeney in 2016 and Tack in 2017, which is the third edge that rotates in in nickel, but isn't the primary, one of the two primary guys there. Um, we saw occasions in 2016 specifically where, Freeney and Vic would be on the edge and Claiborne would bump inside and you'll see something like that. But I don't think Tack is quite at the level as an interior rusher as Claiborne was that season. But maybe the more he does it in the second half of the season, the the closer he'll get to that. Um, If you go back and look at the snap counts from 2016 through the first eight games when all three, Freeney, Claiborne, and Vic were healthy, Vic averaged about 42 snaps per game, Claiborne 44, and Freeney 27. You know, this year you have Vic averaging about 50 per game in TAC 44. Uh, although you got to remember that TAC got hurt in the Carolina and Pittsburgh games. So had he been injury free, that probably that number would probably be around 50 as well. So if you just do simple math and you say, OK, you lower Vic and, and tax uh, snap counts to about 40 a game. And that leaves about 20 snaps for Bruce Irvin to start off with. And depending on how well he handles it, then, um, you know, you can expand it from there. Our next question comes from Corey Woodruff at Corey Woodruff 47. And a similar question comes from KG at Ganoush. Uh, Corey asks, would be curious to get your insight on this. What exactly helped this offensive line do what it did 
against Washington's defensive line. That group seemed to be particularly tailored to cause problems for a hobbled Atlanta offensive line. And KG asks, I'm also curious about this. I was expecting a long day in the trenches on Sunday. Bye week, help, uh, better scheming, some guys getting healthy. Hmm. Um, it seems like they focused on the offensive line play during the bye week. That was something that Dan Quinn sort of mentioned, and I think I heard Alex Mack sort of mention it as well coming that that was something that they went back during their self-scouting to sort of emphasize and, and get better production. So that probably helped a little bit. Um, I think the boring answer is that they played with better technique, better awareness. They sustained their blocks. They got leverage. They got better positioning, all those sorts of things that you hear about offensive line. And I think they just executed. Um, I don't know necessarily know if they did schematic things. As I said on a previous episode this week, I think running the football is mostly you know execution-based not necessarily schematically. Like when you run play action, you're not really manipulating defensive line. You're manipulating the linebackers. Um, But the one schematic thing that I will point to is sort of when you get to play that numbers game. And what I mean by that is when, you know, when you go to three wide receivers, most teams counteract that by playing nickel. And when you play nickel, if you're a four, three team, you play four, two, five. So you have six guys up front. If you're a three, four team at Washington, you're basically playing a two, four, five. Um, um, but you have six guys up near the line of scrimmage, up in the box. And when you have five offensive linemen plus a tight end, uh, you have six blockers in addition to the running back. And so what ends up happening is if your six blockers can each get a hat on a hat on their six defenders, you're basically your running back is, is going to run free. And the only player that's going to be able to stop him is a safety. Um, and, and so if he can make that guy miss, then you're going to get big gains and whatnot. So, or if that safety takes a bad angle, then he's going to get big gains and whatnot. So, like, I think that was one of the things that the Falcons did schematically that helped them out. They There were a number of plays that they were able to get numbers favorably against the Fal- uh, against the Redskins' defense, uh, whether it was 6-on-6 six six or 7-on-6 seven six or 7-on-7. Seven seven. And part of the benefit of the Falcons having good blocking wide receivers like Hardy and, and Sanu is that you can sort of motion those guys and put them tight to the formation and they can essentially function as tight ends as far as blocking goes. That's a big thing that Sean McVay does with guys like Cooper Cup and whatnot playing sort of tight to the formation, and, and Cup is an effective blocker, and, and several of their wide receivers have proven to be effective blockers in that way, and that's one of the reasons why he can basically play th- three wide receivers every snap and still have a high-functioning running game because he's getting, you know, ostensibly seven blockers against six-man fronts. Uh, and and that's a big big reason for why Todd Gurley has so much success, and that's some one of those things that coaching staffs do, and good coaches do that more often than not. Um, you know, I think the other thing that the Falcons did that they ran primarily to the left side. Thirteen of their runs were to the left, four up the middle, six to the right, uh, according to game charting stuff. And so they ran behind their strength. Jake Matthews had one of his best run blocking games of the season. I thought. Schweitzer also had one of his best games uh, of the year as well. I think, you know, we mentioned before that Garland and his ability to hit second-level blocks was something that could be a factor, and I think you saw that on display for a couple of runs. Um, So, you know, I think he also did a pretty good job at the point of attack going up against those Redskins D-linemen. So, again, I I think it is execution-based. I don't don't necessarily know if we'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's not to say that Sark didn't do a good job scheming, because he did, but it isn't like... You can just out-scheme teams. You have to get those guys hitting those blocks. And I think that was really, you know, because we've been doing that, some of that stuff. Now, I wouldn't say all of it, but some of that stuff throughout the season. And it hasn't been as effective simply because 
guys are missing blocks, guys are getting poor leverage, guys aren't able to sustain blocks and all those sorts of things. And, you know, you can scheme it up great, but if the guys can't go out there and execute it, it means nothing. So uh, we got more questions to answer on today's episode. But before we do, I want to plug the NBA side of the Lockdown Podcast Network, where you can find a Lockdown Podcast devoted to all 30 NBA teams, including Lockdown Hawks with host Brad Rowland, good friend of the show. Find that wherever you get your Lockdown Podcasts, your NBA team every day. Our next question comes from Martin at Gunner1986. Can the offense keep this pace down the stretch with Irvin addition and Debo return? Where do you see the D ranking in the second half of the season? What do you see the record being with all said and done? Finally, think the Falcons make the playoffs? Um, I think the offense, you know, I, I expect a little regression from the offense, but, you know, just because Matt Ryan's kind of having another outlier season, but not because... Like he can't sustain this, but just because because the nature of having a, a year like 2016, I'm not going to necessarily assume that he's going to do that. But you know, his numbers through the first eight games of this year versus the first eight games of 2016 are pretty much identical, and he was able to sustain it back then. So there's no nothing to say that he won't be able to sustain it this year. But my expectations, like right now, you have Matt Ryan having a passer rating of like 130 at home. Like my expectations are like that will fall to like 115 in the second half of the season, you know, which is still amazing, but just isn't as ridiculous as like 130. So that's sort of what I expect. I sort of expect the Falcons to win between nine and 10 games. If you had asked me three weeks ago, I was in absolute best case scenario was nine and seven. Uh, I think now 10 and six is probably the best case scenario. But unlike before, I feel reasonably confident the Falcons will wind up finishing nine and seven uh, as opposed to before where I was like seven, nine, eight and eight. Nine and seven being the best case scenario. So um, I think right now when you look at the schedule, the New Orleans games, the Carolina games are the two games that are the likeliest losses. Not to sit here and say that they're they're definitely losses. Uh, they're the two likeliest losses. I think then the next toughest game is probably Green Bay at Lambeau. And that's partially because I'm giving the Falcons the benefit of the doubt that they play very well against Green Bay um, and then sort of canceling that out by them being in Lambeau. Um, I think pretty much every other game the Falcons should win. I won't sit here and be like, oh, they're pushovers. They're just lock them up. They're, they're definitely wins. I wouldn't go that far. You know me. But uh, I certainly think there are games that when you look at the quality of the opponent, you know, assuming nothing crazy happens between now and when those matchups occur, uh, you expect the Falcons to win. I also think the fact that the Falcons in some of those games, some of those games will be close, but I've, I, I think the Falcons have a decisive edge with Matt Ryan at quarterback that versus teams like Baltimore and Dallas and, and Arizona, et cetera, and Tampa Bay, that if they get, you know, late, late game situations in the fourth quarter, I expect the Falcons to be able to drive down the field and score. And even against our lackluster defense, I'm not necessarily convinced that those other teams can do it, but we'll have to see how the defense performs. Eleanor W. Selman at L. Selman uh, asks, do you expect mostly pass or a bit more balance like against Washington considering Cleveland's secondary is decimated? Um, I mean, the boring answer is maybe. Uh, it depends on how, you know, how fast the Falcons start and do they get a lead like they did against Washington, then they can be more balanced. If not, then, you know, they'll devote to pass. The thing you'll say about the Falcons is um, they've run the ball on 35% of their offensive plays, which ranks 25th in the league. So they're overwhelmingly a passing offense. Um, but if that number creeps up to like 45%, then that's possible against Cleveland, especially if they get an early lead and can sort of just basically coast 
uh, throughout the rest of the game. Because, um, you know, as people know, you know, team, teams tend to run the ball more when they have leads. So uh, next question is from Paul at GAVA Hokey. Do we have a governor yet? I don't know. I live in North Carolina. Uh, we have a governor, you know. For, unfortunately, the North Carolina uh, representatives aren't necessarily allowing him to do his job, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, you know, looking at the Georgia situation from afar, it, it seems pretty shady stuff is going on. But like, again, as a resident of North Carolina, I am not uh, oblivious to shady state governments. And, you know, if you live in the South, it, it seems to be pretty rampant. I'm sure, you know, people listening in Montana and Wisconsin right now are like, it's pretty shady up here, too. So, yeah, um, you know, politics, man. But uh, no, to answer your question, Paul. You know, I'll, I'll be certainly paying attention to see what happens. You know, it seems like there's a chance there's a runoff later this year. But, uh, you know, having lived through the whole 2000 presidential election, you know, these these things tend to find a way to get swept under the rug. I just know that. So that's that's the pessimist in me when it comes to politics. So um, I think you do have a governor. It just may not be the one that almost half the, you know, a large portion of the state voted for. So we'll see. Uh, Brandon Rich uh, at Brandon Builder. What is the status of the guard depth? Is there anyone the Falcons should get off the street, or are we set with Gano, Pastor, and Reese? Well, they cut Pastor officially today when they freed up a roster spot for Bruce Irvin. Um, so you know Zane Beatles is Zane season, guys. Um, you know the guy that I, I wanted the Falcons to sign a week ago was Jonathan Cooper. He just got picked up by Washington as they were looking to replace all the guys that got injured this past week. I don't think the Falcons are going to mess with their guard depth or their offensive line depth for the rest of the season, obviously assuming that they can stay healthy. We'll see. Um, I don't think they're going to play Gano at guard. I don't think that's a reality. I think the only re- the only reason we'll see Gano play guard is basically the Falcons realize that he's not going to last at tackle. So, I mean, that's a possibility, but I don't think that's a likelihood anytime soon. So we'll see. Um, at uh, Rise Up 4031, does Des Bryant essentially lock the Saints to win the Super Bowl in Atlanta? Or does Vic Beasley have a thing or two to say about it? LOL. Um, I imagine the Des move, you know, the, this is an interesting move because I'm looking at its situation. And I'm like, Des becomes probably one of their top three wide receivers along with now uh, Michael Thomas, of course, and now Cherry Quan Smith, their rookie, who I was very high on coming out of uh, UCF. Uh, I'm sure Austin Carr will be in the mix now, but you know Ted Ginn and Cameron Meredith are now on IR, and so I imagine that now means with that trio, you're going to see a lot more of Michael Thomas in the slot for the rest of the season because Dez and, and Traquan Smith are primarily outside guys. Um, so I'll be curious to see how Dez integrates in his offense. You know, we know historically that you can pretty much put any wide receiver on the Saints, and he'll be reasonably good with Drew Brees throwing him the football. Uh, that's been the case for the last, you know, what twelve. 13 years or whatever, however long it's been, ridiculously long. You know, when he, who, was the, who was the dude from Tennessee? DeVere Henderson and Robert Meacham. Like, when he can make those guys look like competent NFL wide receivers, then, I mean, they're not bums or anything, like, but they weren't good, uh, definitely. So we'll see. I think, the, so because that being in mind, I, I'll be curious to see what, what version of Des we get. Like, we knew pre-2015, Des was one of the elite receivers in the league. After 2015, Dez was just an average number one wide receiver. Nothing special. Um, good, but nothing special. 
Um, so I'll be curious to see which, you know, which end of the spectrum Des falls on that in New Orleans. Um, as for the Saints, you know, locking up the Super Bowl, look, I, I'm not going to be a big believer in the Saints, not only because of my own Falcons bias, but just because I don't think they have a good enough defense. Um, I think, you know, right now, as is often the case in the NFC, with 2016 being a a prominent exception, I generally think that the best defense is going to have a significant edge in January. Now, we know that offenses are at a a ridiculous pace, but we've seen that in before where these ridiculous offenses, you know, get to the postseason and, and a top five defense shuts them down and goes to the Super Bowl. So, um, you know, I, call me old fashioned, you know, and by old fashioned, I mean like 2013 old fashioned uh, as opposed to 2018 old fashioned, or, you know, newfangled. But um, so I, I'm looking at teams like the Vikings or the Bears uh, in, in addition to the teams like the Rams or Philadelphia, if they make this little run in the second half, you know, those those teams have good defenses, not Rams, not so much, but uh, the Vikings and Bears and, and Eagles do. Um you know, and I, I know many of you are like, well, the Falcons can do it, right? And it's like, mm, I need to see a little bit more. You know, every game is from this point on is going to be a test for me, a litmus test to sort of see, you know, is this team deep of the postseason run caliber or not? Um, and, you know, I think we obviously need to see more from the defense uh, because they're going to have to go on the road and, and win games against offenses like L.A. Or, or New Orleans if they're going to make a Super Bowl run. And, you know... While I think Sark has shown tremendous growth, I haven't completely converted into the the church of Sark is just as good as Kyle Shanahan. Um, you know, call me stubborn or whatnot. Uh, but I think the unfortunate thing is Sark is not going to really get any t- major tests between now and January to to win me over in that regard. Like there will be some good defense that we face, and we'll, we'll certainly talk about it on this podcast. But nothing that's going to be like a playoff caliber deep like. The closest thing the Falcons face to a team that is a playoff team, playoff caliber team that has a top 10 caliber defense is Carolina and Baltimore. And I don't think having good games against those two defenses necessarily is going to make me feel confident that they can go up against Philly, go up against Minnesota, go up against the Bears and be able to take care of business against those. And we, we already saw basically Philly was their one litmus test and they basically failed that test in week one, if we're being honest. So right now, if we're assuming the Falcons do make it as a wild card team, um, they're probably going to face either the winner of the NFC East or the NFC North. The NFC East, I think, is likely to be the Eagles. The NFC North will likely be either the Vikings or the Bears. Um, based off of the predictive models, you know, looking at sites like 538, let's just assume the Falcons get the sixth seed. Uh, then they'll open the first round of playoffs on the road against Minnesota, who will have the three seed um, based off of that. Um, or or the Eagles, um, but let's just go with the Vikings. And then in the second round of the playoffs, they'll have to go on the road and beat the Rams in L.A. And then assuming that the rest of the seeds go as planned, then they'll have to go to New Orleans in the NFC Championship game and beat them. And so, like, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, the Falcons can't do any of that. But it just based off of watching the eight games so far, like, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, yeah, they're definitely going to do that. Like, I need to see a lot more from this team in order to feel confident about that. But, you know, we'll certainly, you know, ask me this question again in Thanksgiving. You know, how far do I think the Falcons can go, uh, you know, after Thanksgiving game, after that Saints game? And, you know, I'll probably have a much different answer. Or let's say the possibility. I'm open-minded enough to think that they could wind up winning me over over the next three or four games. So we'll see.
So we got more to come on this Q&A episode, but first I want to let you guys know about Locked On NFL Podcast with host Matt Williamson, where you have a great lineup every single week. Every Monday you get the local experts from around the various Locked On podcast shows to talk with Matt. This past week you could have heard me on Matt's Monday show. Uh, you can also follow that up on Tuesdays with Sage Rosenfels, the former NFL quarterback. Wednesdays you get Mike Renner, Pro Football Focus. Thursdays, ESPN's Mike Sando. And of course, Friday, you have Matt's Picks. You can find out wherever you get your Locked On podcasts, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Uh, Nerdy Bird at ATO asks, who would be the most improved defensive and or offensive player through eight games? Uh, let's pick both sides of the ball. I'd say let's start with offense. I know most people will say Austin Hooper, um, but as one of the most vocal 2017 Hooper defenders out there, I don't think Hooper is all that different this year versus last year. I think he's better, certainly, but I don't think he is that much different. I think how he's used is is really what changed. I think Sark has definitely figured out how to better utilize him this season. I know, you know, and as someone who also constantly preaches that drops are overrated, I'm not going to look at the fact that he's only dropped one pass so far as something that's overly meaningful as other people might. You know, I know he wound up with six drops over the course of, of 2017, but he only had three at the midpoint, uh, you know, at the same point this year. So, you know, the difference between one drop and two drops is doesn't mean much to me um, enough to be like, oh, yeah, he's so much better this year. Um, so my answer for offense would be Jake Matthews. I think Jake has shown a, a, the most growth on offense. I think several games I've gone into this season where I was worried about whether Jake could be able to handle like Cincinnati. And I thought he did more than hold his own. He hasn't been perfect by any means, but certainly did more than hold his own against several quality opponents. He's got another one coming up against Miles Garrett. We'll talk about that a little bit later uh, from another person's question. But uh, defensively, I think the answers would be either DeMonte Casey, Dirty DeMonte, or Jack Crawford. I think um, Casey's the obvious choice. You know, Crawford only played four games last year, so we're not really dealing with a equal sample size. You know, you, you saw some flashes from Crawford in those first four games before he got hurt, and you can't necessarily assume that had he played more of the last season, we would have seen some of the things that he's doing this year. So I think, you know... Um, Casey is the clear answer here, who basically went from a middling backup safety to a guy that, for the most part, looks like a high-level uh, slash quality starter. So, yeah, Casey's definitely the answer there. Uh, KXI at Zan Summerall asks, how should we game plan for Miles Garrett? Uh, I think you got to chip him. I think you got to sometimes, you know, when he's on the edge, chip him. When he's lining up inside, you got to slide your protections to his side. Uh, you know, you run screens, you run play action, you run the football, you know, and then you run play action off of running the football. But you basically don't want to get him in too many situations where he can pin his ears back and get after the quarterback because then your guys are at a disadvantage. And when he does pin his ears back with the misdirection plays at the screens, you you know, you can catch him off guard. So um, normally, you know, I think Garrett would be a guy that another candidate that would be like, oh, this is going to be a rough Jake Matthews game. But as the season continues to wear on, you know, and if we, I, 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 I have a lot more confidence that Jake will be able to hold his own against Garrett. Um, you know, again, Lawson, and then immediately popped in my head Mario Addison. Again, has a, been a guy that historically has killed Jake Matthews and was pretty quiet in that Carolina game. Um, next question comes from Matt at Matt Stars. What is your NFL comp for Edo Smith? 
Uh, summer is now the fall of Ito. I like the pick, but I think he's impressed. He's creating when the lights are on. The rookie class has been very impressive overall. What's Aaron say? I think when I did my scouting report, my I compared him to Dion Lewis. That scouting report podcast I did in late May with all the rookies, and, and Ito Smith was in late May. So I think it was Dion Lewis was my comparison for him. Like I think I said his floor was like a high-level Teron Ward and his ceiling was a Dion Lewis type of player that could be the lead guy in a, in a committee system, but you wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, that's our feature running back, as the Patriots did last year when what Lewis had like 800 yards rushing and then wound up drafting Sony Michelle in the first round this year so and letting him walk and go to Tennessee. Um, but yeah, looking at the rookie class, we, we touched upon this a couple of times on this podcast the last couple of weeks, but it, it's looking really solid. Ido and Ola Kuhn have definitely blown the doors off of my expectations going into the season, both with how much they've played and how well they've handled those opportunities to play. I thought Oliver, you know, based off of what we've seen so far and, and particularly putting a, a lot of emphasis on this past Sunday's game against Washington when he started, I think he's bounced back very nicely from a very rocky preseason. Um, Sinat has been better than I expected in the early going. Obviously, Ridley has really blown away my expectations. Um, after getting blanked in week one, if you look at the six complete games, and that's not factoring that Tampa Bay game where he played seven snaps, but he had like three catches in seven snaps. Um, but if you average out his yards in those six games and you average them out, extrapolate him that he's going to average that same over the next eight, he's on pace to break a thousand yards receiving. Um, and so if you had told me before the season, oh, Calvin Ridley's going to have a thousand yards season and potentially a double digit touchdown season as a rookie, I would have been like, okay, how many games did Julio Jones miss? 15? How many games did Muhammad Sanu miss? 16 or something like that. Um, so, you know, that's really been special. Um, you know, Gage has been fine. I think on kickoff coverage has, he's been better than he has been as a gunner on punt teams, but we'll see what the, he does the rest of the season. Um, you know me, I'm one of those people that's always, let's pump the brakes on rookie expectations. And now with this year's draft class and 2016's draft class, we've had two out of our last four draft classes that have really blown the doors off of expectations and certainly my expectations. And, you know, that's not going to stop me when we get to 2019, next May and next June, when the, the hype train gets a rolling um, to be like, let's pump the brakes on these rookie expectations. But it is going to make me a little bit more optimistic that the potential of these guys to impact early is going to be a little bit higher than I normally would. Like, you know, it does seem like something about this coaching staff is able to get these guys to play like, quote unquote, good rookies versus, quote unquote, typical rookies um, who are a lot more up and down and really, honestly, a lot more down than up. Um, So, you know, it it depends on things. And like, you know, I'm always going to be like, let's pump the brakes on the hype train. Um, but you know, like in, in, in large part this season's, some of the expectations like Ido and Olakun specifically, you know, what will we be saying about those guys if Freeman and Deion Jones had stayed healthy? Probably not a whole lot. So it, it, part of it is circumstantial. Um, and you know, those, that's really impossible to predict. So we'll have to see, but it, it does make me believe that, you know, the chances that the Falcons get more out of their rookie class than certainly the average NFL team and certainly what they have historically gotten out of their rookie classes, I think we'll, we'll, we'll take it to another level in 2019. So there you have it, guys. That is another Q&A episode in the book, so I hope you appreciate it. I appreciate everybody that asked your questions. If you want to get your questions asked on a future Q&A, which will probably happen once again at, towards the end of next week, 
you can do so. Okay, now I was trying to think, wait, is next week the short week? But no, it's not. It's the week after that's the short week. So I don't know what I'm going to do then. Um, it's going to throw off the entire format, but probably not. Not if I actually sit down and think about it. But anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, if you want to get your questions in, you can do so on Twitter at Falcons. Of course, Locked On Falcons is the name of the uh, podcast Twitter page. Uh, e- the easiest place to send your Q&A questions is there. Uh, Facebook, Locked On Falcons. Email address, LockedOnFalcons at mail.com. And you can also leave a comment at FalcFans.com where the podcast is posted daily. So we'll be back on Monday with a rapid reaction to this Browns game. And we'll keep this uh, Falcons train a-rolling and rising up. I don't know, man. I have no idea how to do these shows. All right, guys. Until then. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.